Hello and welcome to the Rounds Table, hosted online at Healthy Debate. Our whole team wants to wish you a very happy new year. Since it's the time of year where everyone is making lists, we thought that we would kick off the year by rebroadcasting our best of hospital medicine episodes. We'll be airing brand new content starting two weeks from now, and we have a bunch of very exciting things planned. This is just a reminder to please, please fill out our feedback form, which you can find online at healthydebate.ca slash survey. All one word, survey. Thanks very much. We really appreciate your comments. Okay, let's get right to the episode, and we'll be back to you in a couple of weeks with some brand new content. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine. As always, we're thrilled to be hosted online at healthydebates.ca. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and today I'm joined by Fahad Razak, who is a staff general internist at St. Michael's Hospital and a David E. Bell Fellow at the Population and Development Center at the Harvard School of Public Health. Hey, Fahad, how are you doing? Hey, Amol. Great to be with you. It's good to have you back. It's been a few weeks. It's been a while. I've missed you. I have missed you sorely as well. I could probably sound more enthusiastic about my missing of you. Is this real recording or fake recording? (laughs) Okay, let's move on. I think we're on the record. Okay, so today Fahad and I are really excited to bring to you a little bit of an unorthodox format for the rounds table. So this summer, the Annals of Internal Medicine published the American College of Physicians Update in Hospital Medicine, which is really a summary of major research findings in 2013. And so what we thought would be good was to sort of share that summary with you, go through each of the articles, and really just hit the highlights for each of these studies. And so that's the plan. We're going to spread it out over two weeks. Hopefully it will be an interesting overview. So today we're talking about four different topics. The first is C. difficile and two papers related to that. Then secondly, we're going to talk about ventilation strategies in ARDS. Thirdly, we're going to talk about steroids in COPD. And fourthly, we're going to talk about diabetes management in hospital. So Fahad, why don't you kick us off, start by talking about C. difficile, and I think we're starting with fecal transplantation. That's right. So the first study we're going to talk about today had a major finding that fecal transplant is more effective than vancomycin for patients with recurrent C. diff. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine by Van Nude and colleagues. So Fahad, tell me what we knew about uh, fecal transplantation before this study. Right. So about 20% of patients treated uh, for C. diff infection with antibiotics have recurrence after their initial treatment. And approximately 40% have a second recurrence, and further multiple relapses are not uncommon. Uh, And prior to this study, there was a number of observational studies that suggested that fecal transplant was an effective treatment for patients with recurrent C. diff, but this study is the first randomized trial to test that. Okay, so tell me a little bit about the study itself. Okay, so they looked at patients with a relapse of a C. diff infection, and the intervention that they tested was oral vancomycin, so standard therapy, versus a fecal transplant as a single infusion. And the comparison they made was resolution rate, which they defined as no relapse of diarrhea after the first 10 weeks. And their major outcome and finding was that the resolution rate was 81% in patients with fecal transplants, so no recurrence of diarrhea versus 31% in those who took oral vancomycin. So that's a remarkably low number needed to treat of two. 
There was also no adverse, uh, no difference in adverse events between uh, both wings of the trial. Pretty impressive finding, Fahad. Uh, what were the overall numbers of patients? I seem to recall that this was a small study. This was a small study, and that's one of the limitations. So, for example, in the treatment arm with fecal transplant, there was only 16 patients. And this trial was stopped early, and that's one of the reasons that it's such a small trial. Okay, and does that matter for our understanding of the, st- of the study? Well, the sample size alone, I don't think matters. When there's a convincing effect, there's a convincing effect. And, and uh, in this case, the difference was quite big between the arms. But stopping trial early, many people feel, and I'm one of those, that you should never stop a trial early unless there's obvious evidence of harm. That if there's true equipoise, in other words, if you don't know whether the treatment or the control is better, let the trial run out. Because if you stop them early, sometimes you find effects which actually aren't there. Okay, so the other thing, I guess, maybe to be cautious of in this trial is that it was unblinded. So does that matter? So to me, that matters less. Uh, you know, with a fecal transplant trial, they actually could have blinded it. So both the intervention and the control group could have had an NG tube. Um, in one, you could have put down the fecal transplant. In the control group, you could have, for example, just flushed it with saline. Uh, that said, I, I don't think it would have made a difference. But, you know, on this podcast alone, we've discussed a number of trials where uh, the absence of control made a big difference. Uh, the one that I remember the most is the renal denervation trial we talked about last year. Why do you have to bring up something that's so painful to me? <laughs> that's right. You and renal denervation. Okay, so you're okay with the fact that it was unblinded. Um, you're okay with the fact that it was stopped early. Overall, it sounds like you are convinced that uh, this was effective. One of the other critiques I've heard quickly is that vancomycin was not as effective in this trial as it had been in previous trials. Yeah, so just, just a small point of correction. So I'm, I'm okay with the sample size, okay with it being unblinded, not okay with it being stopped early. I think they should have done the trial all the way through to the numbers that they originally planned to do. And in terms of the baseline uh, rate with vancomycin, I agree with you that the the relapse rate was higher or that the resolution rate in this case was lower than what they expected. But, you know, the truth is treating C. diff has become increasingly difficult. So I think this trial matched real world conditions. So in that sense, I'm okay with it. Okay, so having said all of that, fecal transplant is not really widely used yet. Do you imagine that it will be? What are the barriers to fecal transplantation? What are the next steps? Yeah, so I think fecal transplant will enter uh, our standard treatment. The, the, the real difficulty that has to be overcome now is they have to develop some simple protocols about how to harvest fecal samples, how to process them, and then they still haven't really determined the optimal route of administration. An NG tube, or in just case, a nasodiodenal tube is one mechanism, but there are other ways it could have been given. So there's a number of steps to establish the practicality of it, but I do think it will enter clinical practice. Once we get over the ick factor. Once we get over the ick factor. Okay, so what's the major takeaway point from this study? The major takeaway point from this trial is that in patients with recurrent C. diff, fecal transplant is superior to vancomycin. Okay, great, thanks. So why don't we continue on our C. difficile tour of the world and tell me about probiotic use in C. diff. Right, so a a second trial uh, that looked at C. diff found that probiotics uh, do not show benefit in patients who are given antibiotics in preventing a C. diff infection. This was published by Allen and colleagues in The Lancet. Okay, and so again, what did we know about probiotics before this study? Right, so C. diff infection occurs most often in older hospitalized patients, 
once they've been exposed to broad-spectrum antibiotics. And so far, the mainstay of prevention of C. diff has been reducing transmission. So all of the processes that we have in hospital to try and isolate patients with C. diff and to clean rooms, and also to avoid inappropriate antibiotic use in susceptible patients. And there was a recent meta-analysis that suggested that probiotics may result in a large reduction in C. diff infection among patients who are on antibiotics. Uh, this current paper is the largest randomized trial to look at this question. Okay, and so how did they conduct this study? So they looked at patients who were age 65 years or older and who had been given a course of antibiotics within the last seven days, and they randomized them to either receive placebo or a probiotic containing lactobacillus and bifidobacterium, and patients were treated for 21 days. The major outcome they looked at was first, antibiotic-associated diarrhea within eight weeks, and second, any C. diff infection within 12 weeks. The major finding was that there was no difference in either antibiotic-associated diarrhea or C. diff infections. Okay, so a negative trial for probiotics. That's right, a negative trial for probiotics, but I think it also points to probably some complexity in how we uh, give probiotics and what probiotics are. So what are the limitations to understanding this study? One of the concerns I read was that there was a low event rate overall. Uh, Definitely. So the event rate that they were projecting in the placebo group was about 4%. So in other words, about 4% of patients with antibiotics who are elderly patients given antibiotics would be expected to develop C. diff uh, over the the next 12 weeks. The actual rate in the placebo group was about 1%, so about a quarter of what was expected. And this really impacts power. So their ability to see a difference is going to be greatly reduced. And was that just a statistical anomaly or was that a defect in the way that they were measuring C. difficile and they weren't picking up actual cases? Uh, There's two things there. They did have trouble getting stool samples to uh, detect C. diff in about 40% of patients. That sounds high, but what that means is that they weren't able to assess for differences in asymptomatic carriage of uh, C. diff. And so I don't think that has as much clinical implication in this case. But the low event rate is a problem, and the low event rate it could, be, could potentially be due to the fact that they didn't choose patients who were at high enough risk for getting C. diff. So, you know, there's risk factors other than age. In a future study, they may have to look at patients who have other risk factors. Additionally, all antibiotics aren't the same. We know that some antibiotics have greater risk of C. diff, for example, clindamycin. And so they may have to stratify antibiotic use to those who are using high-risk antibiotics. Okay, so what I'm hearing from you is that uh, in this study, what we expected to see was a benefit from probiotic use, but we did not see that, and maybe that points to a more complicated relationship. Is that your takeaway message here? Definitely. That is my takeaway. This study definitely does not provide evidence uh, for probiotic use, but it does leave open a lot of questions, and I anticipate there will be future studies. Right. So we're not throwing the uh, probiotics out with the bathwater yet. We definitely are not. Or with the toilet water, as it were. Oh, you stole my joke. I was going to go in with that. (laughs) (laughs) And then I thought, too risque for this. Okay, time to move on. So uh, let's move on to our third topic today, which is, or the third paper today, which is to talk about patients who had acute respiratory distress syndrome uh, and prone ventilation for their patients. So this was the PROCEVA study. And it was a multi-center randomized control trial that showed a dramatic mortality benefit for patients who have ARDS, or the Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, 
if they were positioned in a prone position, lying face down rather than lying flat on their backs in a supine position. Uh, and this was a study published by Guerin and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine. So Amal, what did we know about uh, using prone ventilation prior to this study? Yeah, so prior to this study, you know, prone ventilation has been a topic of interest for intensivists uh, for many years. And so there were multiple studies that had actually shown no benefit to prone ventilation. Uh, And the theories behind it is really that, you know, the pus or the consolidation in the lungs tends to be gravity dependent and it moves back if you lie on your back. And so if you flip people forward, maybe you can help them clear those things and improve their oxygenation. There's a variety of sort of complicated physiologic reasons why it might be beneficial. But a bunch of studies showed no benefit, including a study by this group themselves in uh, the mid 2000s. But there were meta analyses that showed a small benefit. And so there was real question over whether or not positioning patients prone would be helpful. Okay, so what did they do in this study? So this study looked at 466 patients in a variety of centers, and these patients had moderate to severe ARDS, so they were quite sick. These patients initially received the best current strategy for ventilation, which is a lung-protective low-tidal volume ventilation. So they received that for 12 to 24 hours, and then they were randomly assigned to daily prone positioning or to stay in the supine position. In the intervention group, patients received an average of four prone sessions of roughly 17 hours a day, and they looked at mortality at 28 days, and they found that mortality in the prone group was 16%, whereas mortality in the supine group was 33%, so a 50% reduction. That was their major and dramatic finding. So given there were so many negative studies prior to this, why is this study different? Yeah, it's a good question. There are a couple of potential explanations. One is that, as I mentioned, these patients were prone for a really long period of time, so 17 hours daily uh, on average which was very different from the previous studies where people were prone for maybe three to 10 hours. So that's one big potential difference. The other big potential difference is that the centers that were included in this study have developed experience in proning their patients over the last 10 years. And every one of the centers that was included in this study has been doing this kind of thing for at least five years. So there's the possibility that, you know, turning an ICU patient over is an incredibly complicated task, right? You can imagine there are many different parts that need to be changed, such as adjusting the way that they're fed, adjusting the way that they are hooked up to the ventilator, making sure that they don't develop you know, pressure ulcers, making sure that they, you know, there's, there's so many different elements that go into it that really the, ma- the maturity of these centers is a potential explanation as well. So do you think that that potentially limits how generalizable these findings are? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think what we've learned here is that in the right hands, prone positioning in people who have severe ARDS, and that's the other thing is that this was really focused on the people who had really severe illness as opposed to some of the earlier studies where they also included milder patients. Um, So yeah, if you prone patients who have severe illness early in the right hands, you can really have optimal benefit. But you know, that requires institutional buy-in and training and support. And so I don't think we're ready for wide rollout. But I think the takeaway message here is that this is something that probably intensive care units should be working towards. Great. All right. Let's move on to our next topic. 
So keeping in, in the theme of respiratory diseases, Fahad, tell me about the use of steroids in chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, the reduced randomized control trial. Okay, great. So this study had a major finding that in patients with COPD exacerbations, a short treatment course with steroids, five days of treatment, was as effective as the longer standard treatment course, which is 10 to 14 days. It was published by Lupi and colleagues in JAMA. So Fahad, before this study, what did we know about steroids? So there were a number of trials prior to this that showed that in patients with COPD exacerbations, there was benefit from giving them steroid therapy. But those trials tested different doses of steroids, different types of steroids, and different durations of steroids. And that led to a lot of variation in how we practice. And this is something I've definitely seen in our clinical practice. So there are guidelines. Current guidelines recommend a 10 to 14 day treatment course with anything between 30 to 40 milligrams of prednisone. And these researchers tested here whether a treatment course that was shorter than this would be sufficient. Yeah. And so how did they do that? So they took a patient population with severe COPD. So these patients had an FEV1 of 31% or lower at baseline. And they also had a smoking history of at least 20 pack years. They then uh, randomized them at the point of an exacerbation to either receive five days of steroids or 14 days of steroids. And these patients all received standard care. So they received antibiotics, bronchodilators, etc. Their major outcome they looked at was repeat exacerbations within six months. And the major finding was that there was no difference in exacerbations within six months. About a third of patients in both the intervention and control group had exacerbations. There was also no difference in time to repeat exacerbations, no difference in death from any cause or need for mechanical ventilation. And the patients who were on the shorter treatment course, so the five-day treatment course of steroids, were admitted for a median hospital stay of eight days versus nine days in the, uh, in the longer treatment course. So it sounds like this was a pretty well-conducted study. Is that correct? I think it was. It was a well-conducted study, and I think it will have an immediate impact on clinical practice. Okay, and are there any limits to generalizing these findings? There is There is one limitation, uh, and, and that is that they required patients to be smokers, and so you can't generalize this to the COPD population who are non-smokers. I think from a clinical perspective, that's a relatively small group. The second limitation is that they looked at patients with severe COPD, and so technically you can't say whether this finding would apply to patients with milder COPD, but thinking about the physiology of COPD, there's no no reason to expect that it wouldn't apply to patients with milder COPD. And if I'm correct, uh, Fahad, this was a Swiss study, right? So do you have any concerns about generalizing from the crystal clear Swiss Alp air to the urban jungle cities of smog-infested Toronto? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So we don't know about the other environmental triggers to COPD. So we have more high pollution days, perhaps greater smoke exposure, et cetera, et cetera. So would you potentially take a patient who has a lot of other predisposing factors to exacerbations and give them just a five-day treatment course? I'm not sure. I think that this provides evidence that for the majority of patients, you can't get away with a shorter treatment course. And we know that steroids have a lot of adverse effects. So by reducing steroid exposure by 10 days, that itself has benefit. And there's patients who potentially could have other comorbidities that get worse with steroid exposure, things like congestive heart failure or diabetes. So I think this study could really uh, improve the way we treat most patients, but potentially there's a smaller subgroup who may have some increased risk you may want to be careful with. Okay. So the takeaway point is this is changing your practice? 
This will definitely change my practice. So for the majority of my patients with COPD exacerbations, they'll be getting five days of steroids rather than longer treatment courses. Okay. And since we all want to be like you, that will change my practice as well. (laughs) Don't even know how to respond to that one. (laughs) Let's move on to one of the comorbidities that steroids may make worse, which is diabetes. So our last topic for today is a paper about in-hospital management of diabetes. So this was a randomized control trial that showed that a simplified in-hospital insulin regimen resulted in similar glycemic control to the more complicated basal bolus regimen. And it was published by Umpierrez et al. in Diabetes Care. So, Mal, what did we know before the study was done? Okay, so there are really a couple of different ways we can administer insulin in hospital, as uh, our clinicians know. So the most common way is the use of something called a sliding scale of insulin in which the patient's blood sugar is checked regularly throughout the day and based on how high their blood sugar is, a certain amount of insulin is administered for that patient. The problem with that is that it's a reactive strategy in that you're sort of always chasing your tail and responding to high blood sugar and it's the bane of endocrinologists' existence, which I can say with confidence given that my wife is an endocrinologist. I suppose the other bane of her existence is me. But... <laughs> That's right. Okay, so the other type of insulin administration is something called basal bolus, which is that you give a long-acting insulin that covers patients throughout the day and prescribed amounts of insulin with each meal, so bolus insulin with each meal using short-acting insulin. And then usually on top of that, you add the sliding scale just as correction in case your typically prescribed insulin isn't sufficient. Now, the downside to that is that, one, it's a little bit more complicated to order for the physician. Two, that you're giving patients a prescribed amount of insulin regardless of their blood sugar level. And so there's concerns that you might make them hypoglycemic in the hospital which is really what you're most concerned about. You're really concerned about extreme high blood sugar and low blood sugar, and anywhere sort of in between, you're probably okay. So this study offered uh, a third strategy, which is basal insulin and the sliding scale. So without the regular short-acting bolus insulin. So how how did they test that? Yeah, so this was a multi-center trial looking at 375 patients with type 2 diabetes admitted to medical and surgical wards. So these patients were uh, randomized to three groups. One group received that basal bolus regimen that I talked about. Another group received that basal insulin plus sliding scale. And then the third group received just sliding scale insulin. And they found that the basal bolus insulin, the complicated regimen, had similar results to the more simplified basal and sliding scale insulin regimen, and that both of them were superior to sliding scale insulin alone. So that's a pretty interesting finding, and I could see that impacting clinical practice right away. Do you think there are any limitations to the way they tested this? So there are a couple of important points. So the first is that the patients who were enrolled in this study had mild to moderate diabetes. So they were either diet controlled on oral agents or on low-dose insulin. So they had to be on less than 0.4 units per kilogram per day at home. 
So patients who had a history of severe hyperglycemia or were on a lot of insulin were not included in this study, and I don't think we can generalize these findings to them. Having said that, the majority of patients we see, and I'm thinking especially about patients in, say, perioperative management, like surgical patients, we see a lot of patients who are type 2 diabetics who have moderate disease, and I think that this really helps because you know, this maybe doesn't matter as much in, say, an internal medicine ward where the physicians are very comfortable treating diabetes. But let's say this uh, patient group is being cared for by a surgical team, which is maybe a little bit less familiar with insulin management. This offers a simplified solution that is better than sliding scale insulin alone, which is the current default. So how do you think this is going to impact clinical practices? Yeah, I think the major implications here are, one, basal insulin is necessary. So sliding scale insulin alone is not sufficient. So we should be including basal insulin. And two, a very simple regimen where you give a certain amount of basal insulin. And in this study, they used 0.25 units per kilogram. So a certain amount of basal insulin. And then the sliding scale is just as good as the more complicated regimen. And I think that this could go into immediate clinical practice for patients with moderate diabetes. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I can see this being applied right away. All right. So that brings our episode to a close. Thanks, Fahad, for going on this uh, whirlwind tour of the evidence in 2013 with me. Thanks, Amal. Look forward to part two. Yeah, you were an excellent traveling companion. I'll see you again next week. See you next week.